Well, if you're a guest with us today, we're delighted to have you here, and we are in a series called Inspired, which we started last fall, and we're going through every book of the Bible in its order, and today we've arrived at the last gospel account, John. And before I get into the story of today, which is in chapter 6, if you want to turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about the author himself, John. John was in the autumn of his life when he did his writing, his gospel account, his three little letters in the New Testament, and the book of Revelation. John was banished to the Isle of Patmos because of his faith, uh, and he spent several years there, and it was there he received the revelation, uh, that, that vision from God that ended up being the narrative for the book that bears that name, Revelation. Um, now, a lot of people think he died on that island. He didn't. According to historians, why he did leave the island, went and lived the rest of his life, and ministered in the city of Ephesus. And because of all that John experienced, by the time he gets to his golden years of life and he does his writing, uh, he is seen as a loving spiritual grandfather to the early church. His letters emphasize the importance of living in the light and loving one another. But John was not always so mellow. You know, he and James, his brother, were fishermen uh, when Jesus called them. And I don't know if this is a trade of fishermen or not. I don't think it is. But they had tempers. I mean, they were fiery guys. At one time, when a village didn't extend hospitality to him, John wanted to call down fire from heaven and just burn up the whole place. That's, that's not too winsome and loving from that standpoint. And so Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. And so he was a bit self-absorbed, too. They got their mother one time to ask Jesus that when he came into his kingdom, <laughs> if one of them, James or John, could sit on the right-hand side and one on the left-hand side, which was like saying, can one be vice president and the other one speaker of the house? Uh, you know, this was the kind of thing. So you think, well, they're a little bit self-absorbed on that one, isn't it? So we would have looked at John in his early years, his quick temper and his self-absorption. We'd have said, I'm not sure if he's cut out for spiritual leadership. Aren't you glad that God looks past the flaws to our potential and makes his decision on what we can be, not what we've been? John became one of the greatest leaders of the ancient church. And aren't you glad today that the Lord looks past our fits of anger, our self-absorption, our immaturity, our spiritual weakness, and focuses on our potential? Because of what John was and who he became gives me great hope that God isn't finished with me yet or with you yet. John's gospel is unique in that it records more of relationships. The marvelous passage that we read a little bit ago from John 3.16 grows out of that nighttime visit with Nicodemus, and there's the visit with the woman at the well, and there is the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, all which are unique to the gospel of John. But this morning, I want to take you to one of the miracles that John records that's not unique in the fact that John records it, but is unique in the fact that he picks a miracle that the other three gospel writers also choose, making it, with the exception of our Lord's own resurrection, the only miracle of the ministry of Jesus recorded by all four gospel writers. And the reason I believe that they all recorded it is because it impacted them in such a way this was a life-altering moment. This was a change in the whole ministry of Christ because I think each one of them looked at it as an impossible situation. So here's the setting that we find in John chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 14 and, and uh, Luke and Mark as well. They are 
gathered with a multitude of people. The Bible says there were 5,000 men. That doesn't count the women and children. They are gathered on a hillside, a grassy hillside that becomes kind of a natural amphitheater, and Jesus is teaching. Jesus teaches all afternoon. I don't know if the people expected that or not, but he was teaching all afternoon, and it gets toward evening, and the disciples begin to panic a little bit. They know that some of these people have come from a long way off, and they're afraid that after being here all afternoon, if they send them home, they're going to get hungry on the way, and if they wait too long, stores will be closed and the communities where they go or families will be all shut up for the night and they won't be able to get food. They'll faint along the way. And so Matthew says this in chapter 14, that evening the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus replied, that isn't necessary. You feed them. Now, can you imagine their response? I, you know, every one of them probably went, what? And, and they exclaimed, impossible, impossible. I've learned through the years that some people don't do well with tests. Uh, there are students who really know the material, but you give them an exam and they just kind of freeze up and, and, and what they put on the test does not really reflect the knowledge that is in their head. There are other students who wait to the last minute, and they cram the whole night before, and, and they try to pack as much information late in the game, and, and they do pretty good on the test, and then they promptly forget what they had studied. And then there are people who simply fail the test because, <laughs> because they don't know the answers. All right? Uh, that, that's just the bottom line. And I think that describes the disciples. I think that's why Jesus is giving them this test, is because they don't get the answers. John chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, why, eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have a bite. <laughs> can, can you not imagine the look on Philip's face? I mean, just, where are we going to get bread? Now, this is Jesus asking Philip. I think Philip goes like this, and Philip goes like this, and then says, you, you're talking to me? Are you serious, Lord? You, you want me to? I do not know what Philip was before he became a disciple, but I'm guessing he was in the banking industry <laughs> because Jesus asks the question, where are we going to get bread? And Philip says, money, it's going to take eight months' wages to, to, to provide enough, and, and that's only a bite for everyone. He goes directly to, we can't afford this. We don't have any money, let alone a place to buy it. How do you tell the bread of life there is no bread? Can you imagine Philip saying back to Jesus, can't, can't be done. Impossible. What Jesus really wanted from them is what he wants from us as well. And that's simply the response, Lord, I can't fix this, but you can. After all, he had been demonstrating his great power through the early years of his life. It's as if Jesus was saying, now you've witnessed me making blind eyes see and lame people walk, and you've seen me calm the winds and the storms. Why can't you just ex extend enough faith to say, I can't feed them, Lord, but you can, and if you want me, I'll help you in any way that you want me to do this. Now, why, why did Philip not get it? Well, may I suggest to you this, this morning that, that maybe some of the miracles that they had already seen were a bit more on the mystical side. Okay, let, let me explain what I mean. 
You can look at sometimes a person who has a blind eye, but you don't know it's blind by looking at it. Okay? And so Jesus heals the blind man, and, and that's mystical. That's all happening inside. And somebody can have a lame leg, but the leg looks normal. It's just lame. And Jesus heals the lame leg, and it begins to walk again. And maybe, maybe Jesus was just good as a weatherman. And he knew that the storm was about over, and he timed his words right at the very climax. And we said, Peace be still. The storm was done. See, it's mystical. Now, it's altogether different to watch somebody heal a lame leg than it is to take an amputee and form a flesh and bone leg to replace what's missing. Now, that would have made the disciples better prepared for this moment. Because you see, right now, Jesus said, we're going to feed these people. And they don't have bread, and they don't have meat. They don't have anything. And the response is, it can't happen. It is impossible possible. But God had been trying to prepare their minds for this all along. When the angel Gabriel left Mary after telling her that she would give birth to the Son of God, he left with these parting words, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. In a conversation that Jesus had had where he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven, the disciples say this, they were amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus was looking for a step of faith on the part of his disciples, and that faith element is as important today as it was then. God wants you, and he wants me to see beyond the moment with the eyes of faith, trusting and believing that when we can't fix it, God can. And you say, is faith really that important? (laughs) Yes, it really is. One of the few times the word impossible is used in its context appears in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Andrew didn't score much better on his exam. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Another of his disciples, Andrew, that's Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Andrew doesn't get it either. I found one lunch, but it's, it's, it's a futile effort. That won't go very far, Lord. And, and you and I, when we think of five loaves and two fish, think of five yeast loaves and two bass out of Lake Monroe of pretty good size. It's not what we got here. These barley loaves are probably more like the size of a Ritz cracker, and these are probably two sardine-sized fish. This was a snack that probably his mother had packed for him when he went with them to hear Jesus. Andrew was trying hard, but he just didn't get it. He, too, was stuck on the fix-it mentality. You see, the only person in the story who gets a passing grade on this test is the boy who remains nameless. I'm not sure what he thought the master might do with his meal, but he was willing to part with it if the master needed it. Perhaps the master needed it for himself so he would have had the strength to continue teaching. I don't know what he thought. He just was ready to give everything to Jesus. I mean, that was the passing grade. How how are you going to get a passing grade on this test? Uh, You know, What was the master expecting? If you'd have said, I don't know, you'd have got a D on the test, all right? 
If you'd have said, well, let me get the rest of the apostles together, and we'll come up with an idea out of our committee meeting. That I got a C minus. If you'd have said, well, Lord, you've taught us that we can cast out demons and that you've taught us that we can heal the sick. How can we assist you in this? That would have been a B plus. But if you'd have said, Lord, I can't fix this, but I know you can. There are some things that are impossible for me, but there is nothing impossible for you, Lord. If you created this world and all that is in it out of nothing, then to feed 5,000 people out of nothing is not even a challenge for you, Lord. That was the passing grade. That was an A plus on the test. And the only one that got close to that was the boy who said, Lord, I don't know what you want with my lunch, but it's yours. Every bite. And did you notice that Jesus never stepped in to take control of the situation until somebody surrendered everything? Jesus kept the, hanging, the question hanging out there, the challenge hanging out there, until somebody stepped forward and said, I don't know how you can use this, but it's yours. And when somebody surrenders all, that's when God steps in and can fix our lives. The text continues. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them, and Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish, and when they all had enough to eat, this is a buffet. This is an all-you-can-eat-for-one-price-nothing buffet. He said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. When we read about this moment, it's easy to find ourselves longing for Jesus to do something spectacular in our lives, just like he did on this hillside. But I'm here to remind you this morning that God does not always do the impossible just because there is a human need that is beyond human control. Do not assume that since God fed these people that he is going to feed every one of your needs or wants in life. Don't conclude that he's on the verge of providing a miracle at every inconvenience of your life. Can can I remind you how few miracles we have recorded in the Scriptures? Jesus lived in his earthly ministry for three years. In the gospel accounts, we have a total of 35 miracles recorded. Now, we may not have all of them recorded, okay? But we have a lot of them recorded because those were the highlight moments to convince people. 35, you divide that by three years, that's less than 12 a year. That's less than one miracle a month. Do you realize that there were thousands of people who never saw a miracle, who never experienced the result of a miracle, who never got healed, who lived desperate lives, who struggled in their marriages, who died feeling all alone while Jesus was alive in his earthly ministry because the miracles are not that prevalent. And when Jesus did a miracle, it wasn't for the sake of feeding, it was for the sake of pointing them to Jesus as Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, everybody that ate that day was hungry the next. You ever done that? You ever gorge yourself? Say, I'm not going to eat for a week. Ha! The next morning you're hungry and you're looking for something to eat. All the people I said last week that Jesus healed got sick again and died. All the people that Jesus raised from the dead died again. The only miracle of lasting import was the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. So when your need seems to go unnoticed, 
Don't conclude that God doesn't care or He isn't there. Instead, trust Him to sustain you through the difficulties. Don't trust Him to remove the difficulties. As a matter of fact, that may be the worst answer to your prayer. You can look at life's disappointments and see disaster, or you can look at life's disappointments and dream dreams of how God is going to make you better through that moment. How you view what some see as impossible is up to you. A young insurance salesman by the name of Lewis Waterman went after a particularly difficult client. As a matter of fact, this, this man who was a wealthy man in the community had never bought an insurance policy from anybody else. And, and that day, he convinced him to buy a $50,000 life insurance policy, which, folks, in 1883 was a phenomenal insurance policy. Waterman reached in his pocket, gave the man his pen, and he tried to sign the contract with his pen. The pen wouldn't work. He tried several times. The pen never did work. Handed the pen and the contract back to Waterman and said, maybe I better think about this for a while. And he never did buy the policy. Lewis Waterman went home and determined that never again would he lose the sale of, a, of an insurance policy because he didn't have a pen that worked. And so he built his own fountain pen and developed the Waterman Fountain Pen Company, which for the next 50 years was the leading pen manufacturer in the United States of America. Sometimes it is out of the disappointments, the disasters, the failures that their greatest success comes. Perhaps your greatest victory will come out of your deepest disappointment. You ask God to get you through the tough times. Don't remove the tough times. As Jesus took the little lunch in his hands, he looked up to heaven and prayed, and suddenly nothing was the same. Oh, how things change when we give thanks to God. You say, okay, what can I learn? How can I be a different person because of this story? All right, let, let me give you something. When, when you depend upon God, when you say, I can't fix a God, but you can, what happens? Well, this is what happens when God takes over in your life, and that is you will be encouraged. The apostles went from exasperation to excitement. Can, can't you see this? Jesus breaks up that bread and that fish, and he puts it in baskets. I guess that's where we get the 12 baskets that they took up later. And he said, you start handing out food. Every time they reached in and they handed out food, they just got more excited, more excited, because the food was not emptying out. And the people on the hillsides must have erupted in laughter and joy. Here is the real free lunch. They, they got fed by the master himself. Now, I'm telling you, you can look at life's disasters, and you, and, and you can look with a bad attitude, or you can look with a good attitude. If there is a positive way to look at life, choose to look at it positively. Anyone can be discouraging and negative. It takes no talent whatsoever to be a grump. You want to imitate Jesus? Then think, act, and become positive about life even when it's tough. We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. Who's going to want to know anything about Jesus if we're always cynical and bitter and grumpy and whiny and complaining and negative about everything in life? Did you read the survey at the end of the year? Every year they survey the American public to find out what is the most annoying word in the English vocabulary, and this one won it again the fifth year in a row. Anybody know what the word is? Whatever. That's the word. Whatever. Now, I'm going to take issue with the survey. It is not the word that is annoying. It is the tone and the attitude with which it is spoken. 
There is nothing wrong with the word whatever. As a matter of fact, it is a rather glorious word when you see it in the context of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You see, it's not the word. It's the heart and the spirit and the attitude with which the word is offered whatever, or whatever is noble and right and pure, that ought to be your focus. Attitude makes the difference. Clement Stone put it this way, there is little difference in people, but that little difference makes a big difference. The little difference is attitude. The big difference is whether it is positive or negative. Winston Churchill was once asked, what prepared you most to lead Great Britain through World War II. And Churchill said it was the time that he had to repeat a class in grade school. The questioner said, you mean you flunked a grade in grade school? And Winston Churchill said, I never flunked anything in my life. I was given a second opportunity to get it right. (laughs) Now, I like that attitude. You see, failure isn't always failure. Sometimes it's that second opportunity to do something right that brings the greatest victory. Not everything in life will be positive, but in Christ you can be positive about everything in life, even the tough moments, even the sorrowful moments, even the discouraging moments. You see, when he takes over, you'll be encouraged, and so will others. When he takes over, you'll have more than enough. I don't know about you, but we love leftovers at home. Man, nothing goes out, you know, the door into the garbage. It goes into the refrigerator until we have eaten it. Some things are better as leftovers than they were the, 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 uh, the original time through, I think. They started with a simple snack. Five Ritz crackers and two sardines and ended up taking up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, I don't know what they did with the baskets. They may have given them to the poor. Maybe Jesus sent a basket home with every disciple as a reminder, this is what I'm trying to teach you, that God can do the impossible. I can do anything if you'll just trust me enough. I do not know who got the baskets, but I do know this, that what it tells us is that God never does anything halfway. You say, well, did he miscalculate? No, he didn't miscalculate. God is trying to show that nobody went hungry. Everybody had more than than they wanted, and there was still more left over, more than what they started with in the beginning, because that's just the way God is. And don't miss this significance. There were 12 tribes of Israel originally. There were 12 baskets left over. It's like the bread of life is saying, I will take care of my people. And he does. And you will always have more than enough. He is satisfying. Is he food for your soul this morning? You see, in Jesus, there is no shortage. There is no shortage of hope when you get bad news. There is no shortage of companionship when you feel alone. There is no shortage of strength when your will is weak. There's no shortage of life when you stand by an open grave. There's more than enough with Jesus. Third thing is that you'll never be the same. You have to know these events changed their impression of Jesus once and for all. They were never the same. And I love that phrase, let nothing be wasted. I am strengthened by the fact that Jesus never wastes anything in my life. No hardship, no difficulty, no crisis is wasted. No experience ever goes unused to make me the person that God wants me to be, to make you the person that God wants you to be. So whatever happens to you tomorrow, good or bad, know that God will use that to mold and make you like he wants. Nothing is wasted. Here's the last thing you will face a choice. 
You know how the story ends? The people are so pumped up that they say, we're going to make, take Jesus and my force, we're going to make him our king. Who wouldn't want that? A king that can feed you every day? <laughs> That's the kind of king I'd want. And Jesus slipped away from the crowds because he didn't want that. That was not the kind of king he came to be. And so he got away from the crowds. And the irony is this. Today, Jesus invites us to make him king of our lives, and we're the ones that keep slipping away because we're not sure we want him to control us. Oh, we like the Savior bit. We just don't know if we want the ruler bit. But I'm telling you, it's the same person. He cannot be Savior unless he's also king. You can't have one half of him without the other. So is he king in your life this morning? And you're saying, well, if I could just see a miracle like happen, then I would believe. Really? Really? Is is that what it's going to take? Then open your eyes. You live around miracles of God's creative genius every day of your life. Do you miss them? Most of you weren't here last week because of one of God's miracles. Ice. (laughs) And, and, And you think that, well... Water is so common. Water is, you know, just, we don't even think about water. Do you realize that water acts unlike almost anything else in all of creation? When things get colder, they keep getting more dense and they get smaller, except for water. Water is at its densest at 39 degrees, but when it reaches 32, the freezing point, because of the molecular structure, it begins to expand, and it gets lighter, and it rises to the surface of the water. You say, big deal. Oh, yeah, it's a matter of life and death. Don't you understand that if ice operated, if water operated like everything else, that when ice froze, it was heavier, it would sink to the bottom of the lake, and by March, all the lakes would be solid ice, and every bit of life in them would be dead, and once there was death in the waters, it would not be long until there was death on the land. That because ice floats to the surface, it forms this insulating layer on the lakes, preserving the life that is below and extending the life that is above, only ice. So the next time you think God can't fix your problem, I want you to get a couple ice cubes out of your freezer, put them in a glass of water, and stare at it for a few minutes. (laughs) Just to remind you that God is doing miracles around us every day to give us the life that we've wanted and needed so desperately. When will we learn that the God who can feed 5,000, that the God who can change the properties of water to act opposite of everything else to sustain life is the same God that can fix your problems? Most of us men are fix-it guys. There's so much I can't fix, but God can fix anything. When will we learn that the God for whom nothing was impossible in the past is the same God today and tomorrow for whom nothing will ever be impossible. Seems to me it would be impossible not to want him as king of your life.